0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.
1: Food is is really nothing without place and people. So, talking about these other major cities, Sacramento and L.A. and, you know, other settlements of where African-Americans were and what was taking place there, you know, was a no-brainer. And then I always like to show the people who have come before me and had interesting stories.
2: Hi, I'm Laleh Arikoglu, and this is Women Who Travel, Today is the start of a three-week series where we slow things down a little bit and explore things like cooking, gardening, and self-care in its many forms. We kick off with legendary restaurant owner, cookbook author, chef, and community activist Tanya Holland. She's somewhat of a culinary celebrity thanks to her days on Top Chef, and her Oakland restaurant, Brown Sugar Kitchen, became a focal point of the Bay Area community during its almost 15-year tenure. Now, she has a gorgeous new cookbook out. Your beautiful book, California Soul, it is like maybe the most beautiful cookbook I've ever seen. It is so, so so gorgeous from the photography, but also the content and the recipes and the storytelling in it is really spectacular. So... We will dive into all of that, but first I want to really rewind what role did the South play in your life growing up? I think the South was
1: always just where my parents felt connected to and where their family was mostly based. So it was just always like around, you know, especially when I thought of my grandparents. What that meant was like a slower pace of life, um, just a more comfort home Um, and just always about food, really, like what they were cooking, what we would eat when we would go down South, you know, my parents would make efforts to like, you know, the whole itinerary was planned around the meals.
2: Like all good trips. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What were some of those meals?
1: What I can remember from my grandmother's home in Louisiana is she had this, small kitchen with uh, a round table in the middle where she would prep like a dining living room area. But I just remember, you know, like snapping beans, her always having a can of bacon fat on the stove that, you know, she had poured her bacon fat into or some oil that was saved from frying fish that she would reuse. They would get fish, you know, from, Uh, I guess they were probably coming from the Mississippi uh, catfish, but there was another fish. I forgot what they called it. And then also they had a garden and they had a fig tree. And, you know, I remember her, you know, making fig jam and using other ingredients from the garden, like tomatoes and, you know, it wasn't huge. Um, And then my uh, grandparents in Virginia my grandmother would kill a chicken, and we'd have that for dinner. And they were growing some vegetables as well. And um, yeah, I just remember, you know, them always just wanting to feed us. And when I mean us, my family, my cousins, you know, even neighbors.
2: You write in the introduction to the book as sort of certain foods providing. I really love this kind of phrase: a sensory connection to the South talk even more about those flavors to me i mean like i like want to try that fig jam
1: yeah i mean to this day like i mean fig jam is one of my weaknesses you know when i think of just like the onions and garlic cooking and just those kind of sense of you know pepper and spice collard greens um a ham hock, which would go in greens or beans, a lot of slow cooking, a lot of, you know, pots, something always simmering on the back burner. So, you know, kind of torturing us all the time. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the flavors are just like really humble, homey. Cornbread was, you know, big staple in all the households of our family. In one of those fillers you know and inexpensive but I would say that both of my grandmothers and my mother were always concerned about what they thought were the pillars of nutrition always the protein the starch and the vegetable you know we always had complete meals like that even if we had gumbo there might be a side of greens and a side of cornbread and
2: all the all the key components yes yeah. And, you know, it wasn't just your grandparents who made food kind of like a central part of their lives. It sounds like food was also very important to your parents. And they started, when you were a kid, some sort of supper club called the Gourmet Club.
1: Yeah, they. I mean, they when they were young adults raising me, I mean, you know, and becoming professionals. And that was just something they did. And then they got together with five couples and they started what they called the Gourmet Club. they met once a month, and the host couple always picked the theme, and they did soup to nuts, cuisines from around the world, and regional American food, and um, I just grew up exposed to all this and thinking that, you know, this was kind of normal, (laughs) Um, and it just really informed my values around food and around gathering with people at the table and Feeling that, you know, food was this common language, common denominator that could break down barriers, that could bring people together. Um, and yeah, I still, you know, that dinner parties are still my favorite way to socialize.
2: I love that. And for what it's worth, it's also my favorite way. I think you said something really interesting about it sort of teaching you the value of gathering and bringing people together. And that feels like something that comes up a lot now when we talk about food. And I think there is a trend of supper clubs and it feels like the kind of larger global and also political conditions in this country probably have something a little to do with the fact that we are trying to gather and bring people from different parts with different backgrounds into our lives. What was the period of time when your parents were doing this like, would you think that that was also something they were trying to do? Was it being conscious in terms of like what was going on kind of in the background or was it just bringing people together?
1: Yeah, they were being conscious because they, you know, for 20 years, it was three black couples and three white couples. Um, That's as diverse as Rochester was at that time. There wasn't a lot of um, Latinx or um, Asian to send people up in that area or that were integrated in our community for, for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, that was, it was very conscious. Um, they had just, you know, this was 72 when they started. So there were still race riots happening. They had just, you know, been through the really, I mean, I was born in 1965, the year that you know Martin Luther King was killed. There was all this unrest going on. Um, And they had dealt firsthand with a lot of racism. But, you know, they, I mean, these people that they were in this club with were great people. And that's what I learned from my parents. It's like, it doesn't matter your background. You're a good person with integrity and values. Like, that's what matters.
2: So it sounds like whether you were aware of it or not, you were on a path to working with food.
1: (laughs) You know, I, I was kind of on the side, washing from the side when my mom cooked, I would try to get in there and make something when she wasn't home, (laughs) you know, sometimes get in trouble because I wasn't as good cleaning up after myself. Um, But I was never encouraged to think of this as a career because for, you know, decades and centuries, African-Americans only had the option of being um, in service. And so my parents naturally wanted me to have the opportunity that they were providing for me. I was going to be educated to be something different, engineer, a doctor, you know, an attorney or, um, and so, you know, they were even when I finally committed to this industry, but I remember my grandmothers and aunts and uncles thinking like, why would you choose to do this?
2: Do you think they had a started to kind of gain a greater understanding for why you wanted to do it as they saw you progress.
1: You know, they saw that I could make kind of a living. (laughs) Still still working that out.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And so we're almost at Oakland. But before we get to Oakland and get to the book, you did some traveling when you were kind of earning your chops as a chef. And you went to France and Europe.
1: My first trip abroad was in college. I went to the former Soviet Union because I was studying Russian language and literature. And I got the the bug of like overseas travel just like how mind expanding it is. And I had studied French as well. I always wanted to live and work in France. I kind of wanted to be an ambassador but I didn't want to go through just like I don't know that long ladder that you would have to climb. So when I got into hospitality And I found out that a lot of the really great chefs in even in the United States had trained in France or spent some time in France. I found a program where I could go over there and work in exchange for lessons and work on my French. And so it was perfect. And it was in Burgundy. And I also uh, was able to work in a kitchen in Provence in the Alps. Um. And I lived in Paris for a little bit. And it was just wonderful.
2: How did it change your palate? It definitely expanded
1: my palate. You know, I mean, the technical part, I think, was the biggest uh, piece. Because, you know, I grew up around home cooks. And so really, you know, learning the precision of, you know, timing and cooking things more... uh, you know, a la minute, uh, at the, you know, at the, at, in real time and like sautés and things like that, as opposed to braises and slow cooking. Um, yeah. And just learning more in depth about French regional cuisine.
2: Amazing. So then you get back to the States.
1: Right. Get back and, and- yeah, I spent 10 years on the East coast first, um, Cause I'm from the East coast. I really wanted to make it in New York. I thought, you know, I'd be like the first black woman chef at the restaurant there. Um, and I went to Martha's Vineyard in Boston and really, um, you know, found it very difficult to find the funding and the backing, um, and the support to open my own place there. So, I decided to try, you know, the suggestion of another great chef there. Like, as a woman, he said, you should leave New York. I ended up um, out in California thinking I was done with restaurants. I was going to teach and do some food writing. And then I had an opportunity to, you know, I had some people that were interested in, in funding me to open my own restaurant.
2: After the break, how Tanya's restaurant became the hub of a community. If you're enjoying this episode of Women Who Travel, one of the best ways you can support the podcast is by leaving us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation.
3: She said, Oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one
4: suspect, her father, the Sheikh.
3: It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark.
0: We've teamed up with our new colleague Heidi Blake at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do
2: the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away?
0: There's five policemen
2: outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage.
3: And he
1: reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere
4: because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it.
0: The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to level up? For me, it's my hiking boots, which have gotten me over some pretty tough terrain. And I'm not talking about my morning commute on the New York City subway. They've pushed me to go to far-off places like trekking in the remote mountains in Patagonia, wildlife spotting amid the thick rainforest of the Amazon, and climbing through canyons in the Utah desert. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. There's an available panorama glass roof, 33-inch all-terrain tires, and multi-terrain select driving modes. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior means that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
0: I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. That's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.
1: start working on a business plan looking for spaces and uh opened my first restaurant here in 2008
2: which was brown sugar kitchen which from what i gather was a true community hub as well as being an incredibly louded and successful restaurant
1: yeah it kind of became that without like intention i don't know i mean i i knew that the community needed um you know, an amenity like a restaurant. There was nothing in the area. Um, But I never could have imagined what a a draw would become and became a destination dining.
2: What was the kind of like Oakland culinary landscape like in... 2008. And why did it feel like there was nothing quite like what you were doing at that time?
1: Um, Yeah, when I arrived in Oakland in 2000, I think it was three or three is when I moved here. I noticed that there were like mom and pop ethnic restaurants. And then there were some high end um, established uh, restaurants. And there was nothing really in between. So I aspired to open like a bistro and then I couldn't find the right location that made sense for that concept. So I found this location that was the old diner and, you know, came up with the name Brown Sugar Kitchen and, um, just start doing breakfast and lunch because dinner was not viable in the neighborhood. There weren't enough residents. It was kind of dark. I actually ended up being, you know, very vocal with the city council to get, um, lighting installed so that the area would feel safer in the evening um so it became like you know I kind of became this activist and you know that was another job on top of trying to run a restaurant and (laughs) trying to cook and you know wearing lots of hats but um yeah it was like Oakland was still recovering from some you know sort of tragedies in the late 90s like some um from the earthquake in the late eighties. And then I think it was like 91 were fires in Oakland and, you know, there was um, recessions and it just, the downtown wasn't very lively. And so, but it has great architecture, great bones. I love design. And there was a community here that I felt was underserved. And I just really wanted to open something new that could inspire and would Based on high-quality ingredients and consistent uh, service and, and taste.
2: So, what is it like to actually be cooked for by Tanya? Here's a dispatch from Condé Traveler editor Megan Spurrell, who got to experience it firsthand while living in Oakland a few years ago.
4: Hi, I'm Megan Spurrell, and I'm a senior editor at Condé Traveler. I'm also a huge fan of the Women Who Travel podcast and a very avid listener. Uh, So when I heard that you guys were doing an episode about Oakland and food, I was so excited because I lived in Oakland um, before moving to New York. And I will never forget um, just some of the places I loved eating. I'm originally from Southern California, but I grew up knowing that Northern California had the best food. Uh, Even in high school, I would hear about Alice Waters and what she was doing at Chez Panisse with, you know, picking herbs that were grown right in the area you were sitting in and added on top of your food. Um, I just knew that there was this kind of culinary movement up there that was really specific to California. When I moved to Oakland, I remember, you know, anytime you move somewhere new, you ask, okay, what are the spots that I have to try? Where do I have to eat? What's the local place everyone loves? And Brown sugar kitchen was what I remember everyone talking about just like good soul food. you go for brunch. um you get chicken and waffles. It's delicious, super cozy. and I loved I loved hearing about it because Oakland feels like that to me. you know, if you're I was choosing to move to the Bay Area and deciding do I want to live in San Francisco or do I want to go to the East Bay? And I chose to live in the East Bay because, it's, it's not a bustling city in the exact same way that San Francisco is. It has a downtown, but a lot of it is much more neighborhoody. There's kind of low-slung parts um, where you don't have a ton of tall buildings. And people know their neighbors. And obviously a strong sense of community as the city of Oakland, as the city changes and is gentrified. So Brown Sugar Kitchen just seemed like a place that had kind of been around for a while and people really valued. And it was like, okay... I've got to go to Brown Sugar Kitchen. And I remember walking in. It was on a corner. It was the West Oakland location, if I'm remembering correctly. And I walked in, and I had these beautiful waffles topped with just perfectly crunchy fried chicken. I was with friends who were visiting in town. That kind of gave me an excuse to to do it. Um, And I just remember feeling of warmth, feeling cozy, and feeling like, You know, it was probably the fact that I was leaving too, but being like, Oakland has so much um, personality to it. And, you know, maybe it's because we were eating soul food, but so much soul. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I got to eat there before it closed. After the break,
2: we dive into some recipes from California Soul.
3: We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself, when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one bedroom apartment with a very small
4: kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point.
3: I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious. And this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last minute party with no menu inspiration. A kitchen with no space? A toddler who only eat buttered pasta? Name your dinner emergency? We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now.
1: You know when i first moved to oakland i moved to jacklin and square which has pretty much been um i guess gentrified for a while and it's like it's, it's mostly apartment buildings it's pretty clean and up because it's a port and there's an amtrak station there and it's you know it's fine then i ended up moving to west oakland with my former partner and it's like you know it's a little sketchy and i've never lived in a neighborhood like that and then i'm seeing african-american families that are marginalized and you know people who are unhoused and i'm you know as an african-american person it was just really hard on the psyche like i'm like that could be my uncle that could be my cousin that could be me and to have to see it every day to drive through it, it was really um depressing you know and then i opened a place and i talked about this at one point where i'm welcoming all these people but yet i have people in the area who like you know we trying to get in trying to get a free handout or um we had a lot of graffiti we had theft we had you know copper pipe theft and it's like it was this juxtaposition you know that was really um challenging to navigate um and it's funny because you know things like kind of rose in terms of safety got better um i got a little bit more support from you know the community looking out for the building and and then you know covid hit and now it's gone back down again so just witnessing this like cycle and seeing when real estate gentrification happens but the people aren't taken care of it's just it doesn't work for anyone it doesn't serve anyone it's it's just really it's sad.
2: Yeah a lot of a lot of sadness Oakland has such a rich cultural history to me and Um, you write in California Soul that creating a sense of cultural identity is one of the most important parts of settling into a new place. It sounds like you did that yourself when you arrived there. Talk a little bit as well about that in the context of westward migration and how people who moved to the west coast during that time kind of developed their cultural identity in Oakland.
1: The African Americans who migrated here, they... You know, they set up, um, I would say, restaurant spaces. Some of them are really casual, but there's history and documentation of a very thriving district um, because the porters from the railroad um, settled here because the railroad terminated here in Oakland. And there's a lot of remnants of, of that time. And there were places that people still talk about for their barbecue or their... You know, chicken dinners or whatever it is. But it's, I just think it, it's just really important. The food piece and also the contribution that African Americans made to the foodways out here in California is very significant.
2: And one of the kind of wonderful through lines of the book are the profiles you do of Black business owners um, throughout the region. And many of them are women, which is wonderful to see. Mm-hmm. When I think of
1: California also I always think of it as like where pioneers come, right? It's like people travel across country and they didn't know what they were gonna get into and they made something happen and that's kind of what I've done as well. Like I came here without like a big plan and I, I made a lot happen. And I think of, you know, Mac McDonald from Vision Sellers who came from East Texas and was like I want to make wine and, um, you know, bought a vineyard and he's still making wine and, um, you know, at 80 or almost 80 and miss Odette and her barbecue sauce, um, she's phenomenal and has been really committed to consistency, which again is a big value of mine. And that makes a difference when you're talking about food products. Um, you want the same flavors every time you open that jar and, yeah, I mean barbecue and barbecue sauce and grilling is a big tradition. Especially out here with the you know the nice weather, we can be outdoors a little bit more.
2: How did the idea come to you to kind of group dishes coinciding with places and also holidays and seasons, whether it be Juneteenth or Kwanzaa?
1: Yeah, so, you know, since I've lived in California, <clears throat> even though it's funny, like you get more of a division of seasons on the East Coast, but out here, I'm more aware of seasonality because, especially in the beginning, farmers markets were so much more prevalent than they were in other parts of the country. Food is, is really nothing without place in people. Uh, so just, you know, this book really came together really organically.
2: There are many recipes that I um, want you. to cook out of here and have bookmarked for myself. I But I'm desperate to ask, if you were putting together a dinner party, what would be the three, four courses you would put together from your book? Well, I
1: love the collard green pesto lamb. That's one of my favorites. I love rack of lamb. It's just like, you know, it's sort of every recipe I wrote, I, you know, I asked the question, what about it is California? What about it is soul? You know, and, um, I love the, the Dungeness crab beignets would probably be a starter. <laughs> um, and I think of my favorite, another favorite, I love the sweet potato pull apart rolls, which, uh, be a nice uh, accompaniment and dessert Mm, probably the sweet potato pot of
3: crème
2: what does California mean to you now? Um, it still means that infinite
1: possibilities Um, it's still like it's like the last frontier I feel like there is an openness here maybe because you know there's a bigger distance on the Pacific coast to the next landform as opposed to the east coast to Europe Um, and so it just feels like yeah this is like kind of the edge of the world over here and What we're doing over here uh, can be very innovative. There's no ceiling on what you can do over here. Like I said, expand creatively.
4: Well,
2: that feels like a perfect note to wrap up on. I feel like you summed up a lot of why I find the idea of moving to California very alluring. And I (laughs) fantasize about it quite a lot. (laughs) Um, But this was such a joy and in the show notes we'll let people know where they can find California soul next week a lively conversation with Brooklyn based chef and TV host Sophia Rowe who believes that food is politics season two of her TV show Counterspace takes us to different locations around the world to see food at its source see you then thank you for listening I'm Lale Arikoglu, and you can find me, as always, on Instagram, at Lale Hanna, and follow along with Women Who Travel on Instagram, at Women Who Travel. You can also join the conversation in our Facebook group. Alison Layton brown is our composer. Jennifer Nelson is our engineer. Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer.